Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. We're extremely happy to welcome back Timo Andrus, who we have not talked to in a couple of years. Timo, nice to see you again. Yeah. Nice, Kirk. Hello. Good morning, Doug. Um, beautiful morning here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. I love it. We're just talking he's in Brooklyn. And when I was growing up in New York back in the 70s, in those areas of Brooklyn, they weren't safe to live in. And now he's like hanging out with all these yuppie bars around him. But we're not going to talk. We're not going to talk about that because I looked up your Wikipedia page this morning. And I just want to, for our listeners who don't know you, I want to point out that according to Mr. Wikipedia, your work has received broad critical acclaim and is particularly noted for its seamless blend of traditional and contemporary idioms. Alice Ross of The New Yorker has called Andrus quietly awesome and his music the kind of sprawling, brazen work that a composer should write. Now, one of the most interesting things I find is that you are influenced by your love of typography. And that prompted me to make a Wikipedia category, Composers Influenced by Typography, because we all know that Bach was... Am I the only member? No, no, no. Bach was a big fan <laughs> of the fracture font, right? Okay, right. Stefan Volpe was, was greatly influenced by the sans serif fonts of the Bauhaus school, at least in his early pre-serialist music. So there's at least three. I'd have to do some more research to find others. I know. Um, actually, my friend Nico Muley has a has a piece called "Diacritical Marks." That's a very New York contemporary music title. <laughs> I have a friend named Diacritical Mark. That's funny that you should mention. That. <laughs> I knew someone named Marky Moon once. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, all right. You know, we're going to talk about classical music first. Have you used the Apple Music Classical app yet? I have been using it for uh, you know, I guess the past month or so. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's found a, a place on my on my first home screen, and um, though I have to say, I, you know, daily I find myself wishing there were a Mac version of it. Yeah, because that's really where I do most of my listening. Yeah, you you can install the iPhone version on an iPad, but you can't on a Mac yet. Yeah, and even then, it's like it. You know, it, I don't think it would be satisfying. Because you know, I like I like the the Mac because I have this big you know twenty seven inch screen and I can see. So I mean, it, it makes you think back to the days when like when the iPhone first came out and and the big problem was like, oh, how are we going to show all of this stuff on this tiny screen? Um, and you know, whenever I use a music app, I still feel that constraint. You know, it's like I want to see a big spreadsheet, you know, like iTunes used to be. I want to see my music as just a giant spreadsheet with as much metadata as you can give me. And that's, it's, it's better in Apple Classical, but it's still, you know, I feel the, the constraints of it. Especially since the Apple Classical, Apple Music Classical app has more metadata. And that's the key thing. I'll link in the show notes to the episode where we talked about it into my Tidbits article. But the key difference is that it's got a lot of metadata that's not in the standard music app. Do you feel now that you are recognized? By who? That classical, that Apple has recognized, by by Apple, they've recognized that classical music exists. I guess I do. I mean, I... Um... 
I would say that like I'm very much an edge case, probably even among you know people who listen to classical music, um, because it's my job for one thing, and I I use it in all these sort of professional contexts, and uh, you know one way in which iTunes has always been a little awkward is that uh, I end up with all of these extraneous tracks from projects and you know drafts of things people send me and 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 sort of bootleg recordings and little voice memos and and just like all this junk that sort of filters down to the bottom of the library where there's actually no metadata on it um and you know just different versions of pieces different you know recordings from live performances i've done over the years and it's like that area of it is really still not served. Like there's, there's no real software that I'm aware of that um, makes sort of keeping track of that stuff easy. Well, you just have to manually tag the files when you add them or afterwards. That's the only way to do it. There's no AI for that. Right. No, I mean, it, it is. But then with the cloud syncing and such, it, it often gets mixed up. And Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that Apple made this choice to make a classical music app. It is very interesting. The same. Yeah, I mean, it speaks well for them. And uh, it, it gives certainly gives me more hope for the future of Apple's you know, music software that I've had in many years. So I wrote an article for my own website and I titled it Classical Music Recommendations for People Who Want to Discover Classical Music That Doesn't Sound Like Classical Music. And I was intentionally verbose because I wanted to make as many Google keywords as possible. No, I just wanted to make it very clear the point of this article. One of the things that bothered me about Apple's classical music app is here are these programs you can listen to learn about classical music because you must be educated about classical music. And the first one starts out talking about Bach walking 250 miles to listen to Buxtehude play the organ, which is a wonderful story, but you don't need to know that to listen to the music. Well, I, yeah, I was thinking about this because I, I do feel like, you know, I've, I've thought this for many years, um, basically since I, I was in college, um, that, you know, people love classical music. People love contemporary music. You know, people love just like good music. Um, the things that they're put off by are all of the sort of extraneous cultural detritus that surrounds the music, you know, and, and there well, are like certain people on stage in penguin suits. Well, I mean, even <laughs> that is not so much of a stereotype anymore, but like, just this this pervasive idea that you have to be educated about something. I mean, it's the same with like Wanin or you know any sort of like semi-rarefied, like complex sort of data-driven thing like that, where it's like, oh, I don't know anything really about this, so therefore I can't understand it, and then the the barrier to entry seems really high, and I don't know where to start. Um, and yeah, that. I mean, even just um, the fact that there's a place you can go and just sort of hit play and it'll, it'll you know, give you a, a, a jukebox or whatever, um, I think is, is really amazing. But, you know, I, I think we briefly had this idea in contemporary music circa, you know, 
maybe 2005 through 2012 or so, 12, 13, um, that contemporary music was going to be the way, was going to be sort of the onboarding process for people to like get into classical music. The first at, dose. At large. And, and yeah, there were, there were many um, groups and many uh, concert series and festivals that were sort of built on this idea um, you know, here in New York, we had the Wordless Music series, um, which was one of my first sort of introductions to uh, to that scene. Um, and it was uh, it was a great thing. I mean, they would they would pair you know someone like me, you know, doing contemporary solo piano music with um, you know a, a sort of um, interesting like indie rock band or experimental outfit or electronic music or ambient stuff. And, you know, the audience would come for all of it and they would often, you know, really be into the whole thing. Um, and I feel like we kind of lost that idea of um, creating a big tent, you know, doing this kind of, um, you know, reach, reaching out to people who, you know, we know like oh, if, if they could only be invited in in the right way, they would really like what we do. And so I, I feel like we've been focused on a lot of other things over the past, you know, six, seven, eight years. And, um, you know, I, I, it's an element I kind of miss. So I, yeah, the spirit of your article, I think, is uh, is a, a good one. It, it's um, one I share. I like to use the example that I grew up in New York City and I never went to a jazz club. I never knew anyone who was into jazz who said, let's go listen to Bill Evans at the Village Vanguard. Can you imagine what I missed? Well, jazz is a, is a great example. I mean, for... I think the, the the walls around jazz are similarly very very high, and um, there is so much just kind of insider knowledge, um, and again insider knowledge that you don't really get from just listening to jazz on Apple Music or Spotify. It's like okay, who is playing drums on this yeah. track? You know, hell if I know. <laughs> um, it, it but but it once you start and I've you know in the past few years really just started making those connections uh for myself in jazz of like sort of being able to trace stylistic developments and you know oh this player kind of connects these two people and um you know that's that's uh but but you know i still very much feel like oh i i don't really have a uh such a uh position to comment on this because I don't know enough about it. And I, you know, I'm a professional musician. I can only imagine how people feel faced against this, this sort of wall of, of insider knowledge. It's really too bad because you don't need to know all that stuff. You don't need to be educated to like any kind of music. And it's really funny because I do that anyway. I mean, if I hear an old cream song, if I hear them doing sitting on top of the world, who wrote sitting on top of the world? Who else has done it? Well, why don't why can't I do that with jazz and classical? I mean, I do. Jazz and classical music is much more interesting than pop music. So why wouldn't you want to listen to it and why wouldn't you want to go and find out about it? It's all interesting to me, but I, you know, I I feel like uh, what I hope is that eventually these streaming apps will become a kind of um 
you know, IMDb for music. I mean, IMDb maybe before it got so junky as a website, but, um, you know, a, a place where you can connect all of these different people who've worked in all of these different capacities on the music that you're listening to. And because, so, like, you know, I, I do think it's very interesting to know, you know, who wrote, who composed this pop song, like, who's the songwriter? You know, because very often that data is is nowhere to be found. Imagine my surprise a couple of weeks ago. My my next track pick was Yorma Kalkinen's Qua. And I really loved the song, Another Man Done Gone. And I was walking around the house singing Another Man Done Gone. And my partner's looking at me. I said, great blues song. Now I don't know who wrote it. I had to look it up. Johnny Cash wrote that. I was thinking it was like Mississippi John Hurt or something. And it was Johnny Cash. And it, it just knowing that it, it adds so much to your mention of your knowledge about an artist. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to quickly go through my 10 selections of classical music for people who want to discover classical music that doesn't sound like classical music, because I'm sure that you're going to agree with some of my selections, but maybe offer other selections based on the composer. Uh, I mentioned in my article, it's very New York based. I grew up in New York. There's a lot of New York music, though a lot of the New York music is composers who weren't born in New York, like you, but made their name in New York. And for each one, there are some key composers, and I only picked one work from each composer. Sometimes it's hard to choose. My first choice was the 1978 recording of Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians, which to me is like the emblematic piece of classical minimalism. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that is kind of uh, the gateway for a lot of people and has has been for quite some time. I mean, it's uh, uh, it, it was a hit record in the 70s when it first came out, and I, I think it's it's still clearly you know steve's big head um and it's uh, and it's got that toe tapping pulse in it right it's it, well it, there's so many things about it. i mean um there's a there's a quality to the piece that is you know it's it's at once very accessible and and very kind of um uh it's it's easy to kind of get yourself into it to get yourself acclimated to the song. accessible. It's very accessible. It works in a way that most music that people typically listen to uh, does not work. You know, it's so much more generous in its kind of pacing and its development and just kind of its exploration of its of the materials and just sort of immersing you in this sound world. I mean, it's like. It's got all of those traits that kind of make minimalism, you know, capital M minimalism, like a, this crossover phenomenon. Um, but I, I would say, you know, I have been um, over the past few months writing a lot about Steve Reich because I, I'm, I was working on this big liner note for the, uh, for a, the complete works basically, um, and I compared you know, a lot of the existing recordings of music for 18 musicians. And I will say the performance practice of the piece has come quite far. And, you know, it's interesting to compare, say, that that early 70s recording to um, the recording with Ensemble Signal from about 10 years ago, I think. Um, 
it's uh, it's kind of an amazing journey. You see this this performance practice like filter down to the younger generation of players, and they totally inhabit it in a way that is incredible. It's become a piece of classical music. It is, and that was a that was a, a decision that I think Steve made at a certain point in the '90s when he said, "You know, I'm not going to want to be touring with my group forever. Um, you know, uh, I'm if when I'm getting older, and what I want to be doing is staying home and composing, not out on the road." you know, playing piano for music for 18 musicians. He, did, he didn't want to just keep playing the hits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, only then is when they, they created the score to the piece. Ah, okay. So the score, you know, that I have on my shelf right there uh, was actually created by a composer named Mark Mellitz. Um, commission and commission for a, by, for a long time there were no recordings of his works other than by him and his ensemble right because the 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 music was all exclusive to them and he didn't really make the scores of a lot of that stuff uh, didn't exist uh, so so they made this decision in the nineties like okay let's transfer this body of work to the next generation of players and. Um, it really kind of exploded after that. And, you know, I think it was a great decision. Now, Philip Glass Ensemble has still not done that with most of their repertoire. It's still one of the The one exception is the solo piano music, which in the past 10 or 15 years has been recorded a lot. Right. I mean, there, there's plenty of glass you could buy, um, form, but not the Philip Glass Ensemble pieces. That's something that, you know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see over the next few years how they kind of handle that transition. Okay. My next choice, now this is totally a chance operation. I'm wearing my John Cage 433 score t-shirt because it was on top of the pile this morning. It's totally chance. My next selection is John Cage's Sonatas and Interludes for Prepared Piano. You can't talk about 20th century classical music without mentioning John Cage. And there are so many works that I could have picked. But this one is kind of, it's like the oddity of this piece, the prepared piano where he put screws and pieces of wood and rubber in between the strings to make it, what, a percussion symphony instrument, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you might not even know that it's a piano if you just sort of happen to hear it. Um you know, I, I, it's it's an interesting choice for this um, because I'm not sure how much your average listener would really like care about it being prepared piano. I mean, I I that's sort of a a little bit of a nerdy thing that like composers get into, but I you know the, the I think there's something about the music that is again it's very groove based like the the rhythmic language of it is um kind of infectious in a way it get it uh it's very syncopated it's very uh it's very catchy i think i think that if you told an average music listener that is a person who doesn't listen to classical music you got to hear this really funny recording the guy puts washers and pieces of cork and things like that in a piano and listen to what he did so that might almost be an enticement for a, a, a non-sophisticated person, I hate to say that, but but a person who doesn't aware who isn't aware of what you can do with a piano, putting washers and cork and things like that in there, so it might it might be interesting to the non-musician that 
they doinked around with the piano. Yeah, that could be a hook that gets people curious. Yeah, and I think it's it's uh yeah, I mean it's something that is it in terms of experimental music, that's what you want to call it. I think it it's a body of work that is at once quite experimental and quite successful music like the experiment kind of works, you know, and it doesn't always. And a good example is that there are dozens of recordings of these pieces of music. It's true, yeah. So that's alive. My all-time favorite John Cage is the 60-minute version of Rio Anji by on Hat Hut Records, the red and white thing. That, that is the, the, ambi the, the, the sound, the atmosphere of that music is my favorite. But that to me is not accessible to people who aren't really into that kind of music. Well, but I, you know, I think there is certainly a, um, there's a group of listeners to kind of more experimental ambient and electronic music that could be very into that. Hence my next selection, Morton Feldman's Piano and String Quartet. Okay, yeah. It's really hard to choose a Morton Feldman piece particularly because they're very long. This is the 79-minute Kronos Quartet recording. I didn't want to choose his second string quartet, which is, you know, six hours-ish. As you say, ambient electronic, this is it. This is this is minimalism with a, a double capital M, in my opinion. And I, I know that Feldman is not considered a minimalist because minimalist is considered to be repetitive music. But for me, the minimalism of Feldman is... Well, Feldman is very repetitive. Yeah, but not in the same way. It's it's more the quiet, the sparseness of his music that touches me. It's it's extremely meditative. I mean, it's extremely the atmosphere of it is is really something special. I mean, I think um, I I think it's it's music that a certain type of listener will always get really to. And and you know, even I, I was just talking with a friend the other day, like imagining if if Feldman were alive to sort of see the Feldman uh, legacy at work because I, I there's so there, I think the the influence that he had on on music and and contemporary music in particular um is has has only grown and in every composition program that I was ever in, you know, in um, when I was studying, you know, I'd say there was at least one Feldman imitator in every group of young composers, and I think that's still the case, you know. And and you know that there are many composers you could point to, even you know, among, among um, you know, uh, uh, highly recognized professionals, who you could say are kind of continuing the Feldman experimental tradition. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I wonder what he would have to say about that if he, if he were alive today. And again, I'm thinking, why didn't I run into these people when I was in New York in the seventies? I only discovered, I, I discovered Steve Reich around 76, 77. I was at a friend's house. He put on six pianos from that Deutsche Grammophon box set. And we imbibed in some mind altering substances. And at the end, I was like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> and that totally just grabbed me. And I saw Steve Reich's ensemble probably a dozen times 
between then and when I left New York in 1984 in wonderful situations, once in the bottom line doing the octet music for a small ensemble. Bottom line is this is this cabaret that has closed since and it was very small. I saw the big retrospective at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I think it was 84 where they did like six concerts playing everything. I saw him at the Guggenheim Museum once with the harmonic choir opening. They're the ones who do that throat singing. It was really interesting. But I missed Feldman. Never, I was never a guy who went down to the kitchen back then. I missed all that Feldman and Cage stuff. Uh, yeah, Feldman, I think, um, well, he didn't have his own ensemble, for one thing. It, it, the the uh, propagation of his music was a little bit slower, and his, you know, he, his, his music, of course, has um, puts a extreme demands on performers, you know, like Reich or Glass, but in a different way. And Well, including bladder demands when you're playing pieces that long and you don't have an intermission. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, I think because it doesn't have that immediate, uh, tie in to pop music, you know, it's not so much pulsed. It's not so much about, you know, harmonic change and harmonic progressions. Um, it is always going to be a little bit more of a niche phenomenon. Okay, my next choice is Toto Takamitsu, who's one of my favorite composers. I discovered him when I was like 19 playing classical guitar, and there was a couple pieces of his on a classical guitar record, and I just got obsessed by his music. His He creates these sound stages that are just weird and and I don't know how to, these sort of shimmering waves of sound. So my selection is something called For Me Froze What You Call Time, which is a 36-minute percussion concerto, technically. It's classical. It's not classical. It's a normal orchestra and percussionist. But it's like, it's just so, it's it's classical adjacent in a way, right? It's a, it's sort of intoxicating in a way. I mean, it's, it's very much like... Um, in this lineage of music, you know, coming maybe from Debussy um, and and going up to Zariaho today, I mean, it's like this music that's very much about um, moment to moment color, and the color is sort of what articulates the um, the ebb and flow of the music. Uh, I have to say, for me, I I, I never really. Um, Again, I, I I appreciate it moment to moment, but I never really got so into Takamitsu because for me, his music doesn't have the kind of structural uh, journey that I sort of look for in a in a more extended work. And and also his works. I don't think he's written anything that actually has movements. A lot of his works are between 10 and about 18 minutes long. There's a new record that just came out. I'll put a link in the show notes on Bis Records with four of his pieces. And they, they just kind of start and end, right? You don't get that feeling that there is a progression of any sort. Right, exactly. And and that's sort of, that that is problematic to me. And it's something that I feel like as a, I don't know. I mean, as a as a new listener to classical music, I don't know how much it matters. It's probably different for different people. But for me, the feeling of being lost in a piece of music and not really knowing where I am in the structure is is a bad feeling. Uh, and it may, may, kind of makes me feel like someone is telling me about this crazy dream they had. And I never really know what 
when it's going to end. That's that's very interesting because that's sometimes how I feel when I hear a lot of of this sort of music. I feel like, what am I grabbing onto here? Where am I? I mean, it's easy to 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 give up on that and just lay back and just okay, just listen to it. But my brain can't help it because I'm that kind of guy that says, where where did he start? Where's it going? Why is it yeah. doing this right now? That kind of thing. So I, I understand that feeling. I like the way you put it, though. Okay, my Philip Glass selection, because there has to be one, is probably not the most accessible, but it's by far, I think, the most imposing is Einstein on the Beach. I was fortunate to see the 1984 revival at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and the selection here is a recording of that, which was only released digitally a few years ago. The thing about I want to say fundamentalist Philip Glass, like uh, music in 12 parts that seems more like theoretical than anything, is you've got things that, well, okay, he kind of repeats himself a lot there. And some of the parts of Einstein and the Beach are like that, but some of them are so incredibly lyrical, the parts with the spoken voice and the violin, or even just the beginning of the one, two, three, four, and all that. It just builds up in such an extraordinary way. As a whole, it's not easy, but individual parts are fantastic. It, it yeah, I, it is interesting that you you picked kind of this uh, this very like um, yeah this pure unadulterated uh, kind of uncut Philip Glass. Um, it's uh, but but the, yeah, the thing is like you can always dip in and out, and you can you know listen to a scene of Satyagraha or. A scene of Einstein that we are one of the parts of music in twelve parts, or you can choose to listen to you know all four hours of it. You know if you've got a, a long airplane flight or something, or you put it on in the background while you're working. Yeah, but I mean it's it's it is music that I think um, again like like Reich, it is it it has this tie in to pop music it's it's like there are qualities that it shares with pop music which um it, it kind of draws out and and extends and and it it lets you kind of examine them in a way and and the way that it develops i think you know i it, you know philip doesn't like the term minimalism um he likes he likes the term um music with repetitive structures i think and the the stru again the structure is really what it's about is this this these constantly shifting patterns these additive and subtractive um, uh, sequences of of notes and rhythms that work more in the way that um, Indian classical music works that's something he got from Ravi Shankar from from working for Ravi Shankar and studying with them. And there's also a slow progression in these things. It's more like the changing of seasons on a tree instead of things suddenly changing. Yes, very much so. I mean, it, it except that occasionally you do get these moments of sudden change, like when, you know, every 20 minutes or so, when each part of music in 12 parts you know, is the next part. And there are these kind of ecstatic um, harmony changes where everything shifts and it's like, that's sort of what keeps the 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 piece going forward. If I didn't know what kind of music you were talking about, I'd think you were talking about EDM. <laughs> it's 
You know, the I mean, I'm thinking Fat Boy Slim, for example. But there's this EDM re- is greatly influenced by this minimalism. But there's this yeah. repetitiveness of it that a lot of people don't like. But there's this building, this process of adding things, taking things away, adding, making them different. And so I, I, I wonder why people don't want to put this music on because it it has the same sort of thing as this pop EDM, yeah. but it's just a little more cerebral. I mean, I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, I think the this idea of pulsed, repetitive music that is driven by a kind of layering you know, it, you you hear different instruments coming in in different ways and adding things to the music. And, mm-hmm. you know, the musicologist Robert Fink um, writes about this in relation to disco, um, that it's kind, kind of these extended disco tracks um, from the 70s, like Donna Summer and so forth, uh, of, of working in a very similar way to the so-called minimalists of the time. And... Um, you know, I, I think that connection really, um, you know, you you feel it even if you don't necessarily, um, if, if you just can't really put a name to it. But I, you know, I think I'd say glass in particular is certainly one of the main entry points. I think for for people who are outside of classical music to kind of at, uh, use as an entry point and. I know this from playing shows with him, you know, all over. And the audience that he brings in is not your typical audience who shows up at the symphony or who comes to piano recitals. I mean, it's like, it's people who are very interested in the arts um, who might have, you know, a background in some kind of uh, visual art or, or, Experiment. Typography. Typographers, mainly typographers, <laughs> <laughs> graphic designers, you know, but, um, uh, but they know that they love glass and they, they know that his music is going to give them that kind of structural, uh, that satisfying structural journey. And it's going to have good tunes. It's going to have harmonic change. It's going to have you know, especially the more recent music, it's it's going to have a lot of um, shifting pulse, but it's going to be very meditative. It's going, to, it's going to give them all the things that they look for in music that doesn't have lyrics, right? <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I mean, I do think that the the early works are a little bit more of a a challenge in terms of just sort of the the monumental quality of of the sound of them it's it's like these very kind of almost aggressive timbres a lot of the time yeah amplified electric organs loud yeah, yeah. It's, it's supposed to be loud yeah. you know it's supposed to kind of overwhelm you and 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 put you in this state of you know listening to these shifting patterns um but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a very good choice. Okay, I want to move on to the only sort of atonal work. And technically, I don't think it's atonal. Catalogue d'Oiseau by Olivier Mission. And the reason I picked this is I sit out in my garden here and I listen to the birds. And I have this new app on my phone called Merlin Bird ID. 
I think it's Cornell University. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cornell. And, and so I see, like, wow, I've got these 12 birds today, and I'm learning to listen to the bird calls. And that reminds me, when I lived in the French Alps, not far from where Messiaen was, I discovered these birds, and I discovered this music. And basically what he did is each piece in this is about a three-hour collection of works. Is based on the call of one bird of a particular region in France. And I, I get this isn't technically programmatic music, but he's doing something to imitate something. And he does it in a way which I, I don't think is the easiest for people to get into classical music because a lot of it is atonal. But there's something magical about it when you compare it to the way birdsong is atonal in some ways. Well, it's, it, it is not... Um... It's not tonal according to functional harmony of West Western harmony. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. Like you're you're picking these uh, pieces by composers who that are kind of the, like the, the 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 slightly more abstruse ones. Um, yeah, like I, I well, feel like this is a really subjective choice. Right, right. Like people, I I can definitely imagine people, you know, hearing. Uh, parts of Quartet for the End of Time or or even Taragalila Symphony and, and that being sort of like a, a jumping off point. But the catalog des oiseaux, I mean, that's like, again, really like, you really have to love Messia to uh, <laughs> be into that. And I, you know, I I do love Messia and I, I love those pieces. Um, again, like, I'm not going to sit down and listen to the whole thing because it's, what, like three hours of piano? Just under three hours, this recording. Yeah. But you can put it on in the background. And one of the things I think is you don't have to sit and focus on classical music all the time. You can put it on in the background. He can't put it on in the background. He's working right. in music. Okay, he but... can't have it on. He can do it while he's making a sandwich, but he can't do it while he's composing. <laughs> I do tend to be an active listener, and I I don't just put music on in the background really ever. But... um. The catalog is what I mean. These pieces are, again, structurally they're interesting because they are kind of like being out in nature. Like the pace at which events happen and the order in which they happen is seemingly, you know, totally stochastic. It's totally like again, like a chance operation, and it's it is like taking a walk and just sort of stumbling on these sounds. Um, and it's, it's very atmospheric in a way, uh, and very beautiful. I mean, I think the thing about Messina, like, it's interesting because if you want to get into the weeds a bit, he did kind of invent integral serialism as a technique, um, which, you know, inspired, you know, Boulez and Stockhausen and like all those guys to write this very hardcore, um, ser atonal serial music. Uh, but most of Messiaen's music is uh, much more concerned with um, his own kind of understanding of harmony as it relates to color and um, and nature. Because he was very much he was very much in tune with the area where he lived. I lived a half an hour from where he lived. I should say also that you know the sounds in Catalogue des Oiseaux are not just bird sounds; they're all the yeah. sounds of the natural environment and. In the score, he marks what they are. You know, he'll say like, "Okay, this is the bird," but then here are you know the, the rustling winds, and here's the river, and here's kind of like the 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 sky. It's like this very beautiful kind of um, way of painting a, a, a sound 
picture. But, you know, you say Eitan, I would actually say Feldman is more atonal than Messian, but I think both of them have extremely uh, extremely well-formulated harmonic systems that are extremely identifiable. So, you know, you hear a Messiaen chord and it sounds like Messiaen. You hear a Feldman chord, it sounds like Feldman. Um, it's not just sort of generically, um, you know, dissonant. It's not blind serialism. They, they both had incredibly keen ears for these combinations of these vertical combinations that they were putting together. And I think that's sort of why I, you know, I'm a very harmonic, uh, harmonically focused composer. And that's sort of what has always attracted me to Messiad Feldman. My next selection was a big hit when it was released. Arvo Pert's Tabula Rasa. On ECM Records, which was also the first Steve Reich Music for 18 Musicians, this was a big deal when it came out. This was really popular. It was Gidden Kramer and his ensemble. Keith Jarrett played on the recording. I saw two performances of this work in Paris. And what fascinated me is Tabula Rasa is a kind of a deconstruction. And at the end, it just goes into silence, but the conductor is still marking the, the the rhythm for like eight bars or something of the silence. And it makes you feel how powerful silence is when the audience isn't applauding and the Bravo guy's not yelling Bravo, that you, you're so intimidated at the end. It was even hard to applaud afterwards. Well, there is a sense. I, I mean, again, uh, Parrot, I think, is one of those composers like Glass for whom uh, a lot of people are are kind of comfortable with his music who are not necessarily classical music listeners otherwise. Um, and I think he has this, this huge worldwide audience, um, because his music, it, it gives us the same kind of, uh, emotional response and same, same kind of feeling that maybe music with words would without words. It's it, you know, it, it creates this kind of, um, emotional, uh, I'd say, you know, quasi-religious space, you know, even for, for, um, you know, heathens like me, I mean, non-believers, um, that you, you kind of feel, a, um, a, you feel yourself in, in the presence of some kind of divine, uh, power. I mean, it's really like, for me that, you know, religious music, Sacred music. Um, that's when I uh, when I really. That's the only time I really understand. Like, okay, this is this is why people are, you know, religious. You know, it puts you in touch with this 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 feeling of of uh, uh, some some kind of presence. Um, and Peretz music, it has some of those same kind of qualities of having these very simple harmonies, these very repetitive structures. Um, there's a kind of openness to it, like glass. Um, but the affect of it is completely different. And the the way in which it develops is quite different. And um, yeah, I mean, again, like, it's a, it's very much music about space. 
you know, you feel you, it's about acoustic space. You feel like you're in this cathedral, you know, you, the, the music kind of puts you in this, this huge, um, this huge reverberant space that is awe-inspiring, you know? Especially when you hear it live. Even the chamber music, even a piece like Fratres, you know, chamber music, um, or Furalina, you know, this little piano piece, uh, I think it does that. But I think, you know, also like a lot of great sacred art, there's a, there's a humility to it. You know, it's very plain spoken. It doesn't do anything fancy. You know, it's not, it's not really, um, uh, conventionally virtuosic. It, it says what it says with very simple, humble means. And, uh, for me, that is kind of the most inspiring thing about it is like, uh, just as a composer, it's like, okay, these materials are so simple. And what he does, the process that he puts them through is so simple. And yet they kind of have this, this, um, power of, 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 religious icons. You mentioned sacred music, and I just want to throw out a quote by my favorite philosopher that no one knows about, Emil Chiron. He said, Bach's music is the only argument proving the creation of the universe cannot be regarded as complete failure. Without Bach, God would be a complete second-rate figure. <laughs> well, I I would put many other composers up there. And I agree. Artists, I agree. But you know, oh. Bach's a good one. Okay, so my next pick is the the first recording of Terry Riley's In Sea, which is this like the Ur minimalist piece? Well, if if you mean the first minimalist piece, I, I it's not. Um, but no, but the one the first one that got minimalism to move forward. I it, it's debatable. I mean, it is very early. It's what sixty four. 68. 68. Okay. 68. So yeah. Well, this recording 68, he may have written it before that. So, yeah, so around the time of those sort of very early like open instrumentation glass pieces and around the time Reich was experimenting with tape loops and um there you know there was something in the air at that time. You know, Lamont Young had already been writing for for several years and and I believe Steve Reich is is on this performance as well. Yes, and in fact it was Steve, who came up with the idea of the pulse, the repeating C at the at the upper end of the piano, that that was him. And uh, before that, in C, I think was meant to just sort of be these the melodic cells. But they were having when they were rehearsing, they were having a really hard time staying together. So, so Steve kind of said, "Okay, what if I just played this, you know, re repeating?" <laughs> Pulse. Um, now, NC is not an easy work to listen to, I find. It, it can get tedious. Sure. But I, I think there are tons of recordings. It's been recorded for all sorts of, you know, ensembles. It can be performed by any number of musicians and, and it's, you know, totally free. But I think it kind of, it goes back to the EDM stuff, that sort of pulse, that rhythm, that, that relentless rhythm that goes on and on like a rave. Well, but it's also, it, it's a, it's a jam band, you know? Yeah. It has this really yep. kind of wild and woolly, uh, kind of California hippie, uh, energy to it. Um, and I think the best, my favorite performances of the piece kind of get at some of that, you know, that this kind this kind of like anything can happen, uh, really like 
and and to perform the piece really feels like that as well like it's very much it's very much much more open than anything by any of those works by glass or reich that we talked about um it's really uh about communication and sort of moment to moment decisions by individuals and um it like yeah, there is something about the piece that is it it just has this wonderful kind of spirit of um of of a of a d democracy almost or like a like a you know ev everyone's voice is kind of like contributing to this whole but no one is kind of more important than anyone else uh yeah, that, and and again, as you say, there are many, many, many recordings, and they all sound very different because of how open the piece is and the instrumentation. Of course, one of my favorites is um, by a uh, a Shanghai film orchestra that incorporates um, many traditional Chinese instruments. Um, has a, ve a very interesting sound. Um, it's uh, again, the piece is so flexible. In that way, it, it can really take on, you know, any character that you kind of want to give it. Okay, next selection is, this is not an easy one, but the reason I chose it is because it's a song with variations. It's Frederick Zhevsky's The People United Will Never Be Defeated. I've picked the recent Igor Levitt recording. He's he's piano machine, Igor Levitt. And it starts out with a, a song that just sounds like a popular song. And then it just gets twisted and turned through all these variations. And what's really important is that variations are a key element of classical music. The Goldberg variations, the Diabelli variations, and all the great composers have written variations. So this is a way to hear variations on the piano, but of a song that sounds like a, I don't know, a early 20th century union song. Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, I, th I think it's, it's, Again, like it's it's a, a big ask, I think, for people um, to, uh, you know, to sit down and listen to this, you know, 45 minute or so uh, piece that is, at, you know, at times very confrontational music, very angry music. Um, but it's also, you know, it it's it's very it's very fun music that is an incredible amount of variety to it, both in terms of uh kind of emotional affect and just in terms of style i mean jevsky um sort of was one of one of the i'd say original like eclectic composers who would really just sort of put in put any ingredient into the stew pot that he felt like uh fit with the with the material and and um you know you know in many ways i think uh foretold the era that we live in now where you know composers feel much more um much more free to kind of uh combine different styles and work in any kind of stylistic uh uh um yeah garb that they want to put on um people united i mean it's uh, again like if you're into Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg variations, you know, um, I think it's a, it's a fascinating companion piece to that because the way that the music works is similarly 
actually very rigidly controlled. Like the the structure that Jevsky uses is um, uh, that there are all kinds of internal hierarchies to it and internal repetitions and the ways that the different variations function um, are actually quite uh, quite worked out in the way that the Goldbergs are. Um, so it's this great combination of, of being extremely hierarchical and extremely kind of planned out and then just kind of wild and, and, you know, there are improvised cadenzas in the piece and moments where it really seems to run off in a, in a different direction. And, um, but it, but it has, again, that great emotional arc. And I, you know, I find that the piece can be quite moving in, uh, but again, I, I I think it's music that works maybe better in a live performance. Like to honest navigate that structure is, you know, it's 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 heroic. It's like like any of the major um, pieces of solo piano repertoire. You know, it's it's really thrilling. That's very interesting that you make a, a dichotomy of a recorded version and a performed live version. Something that I don't think a lot of people think about when it comes to classical recordings. You just assume that, well, that's the way it's supposed to go. But the, the way you can hear it live, it's a topic for a whole podcast, really. But, I mean, there are plenty of pop artists, for instance, that are terrible in the recording studio but are great live. And, and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Jevsky's music in particular, I mean, there's a there's a hairiness to it, a kind of wooliness um, where it's not supposed to be perfect, you know, and a, 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 a clinical version of it is kind of against the spirit of it. And, and Jevsky himself, you know, was a, a wonderful pianist and recorded um, much of his own solo piano music. And it's... Um, it's it's a very extreme way of playing. It's it's very ugly at times. You know, I think purposely so. Very um, very brash. But the contrasts in sound and dynamics and 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 touch are extreme. Um, and it's it's yeah. It's 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 really just kind of like uh, it it's extremely confrontational playing and then extremely confrontational music. Okay, my last selection is by a young composer who lives in New York who's very influenced by typography. And I, I picked this in part because I know you, but because I think this album is a good example of the crossover between classical music and other music, starting with the last piece, Eno Paraphrase, where you took a few Brian Eno songs and you turned them into air quotes, classical music, or the three movements of the Mozart piano concerto that you recomposed and turned into kind of like, doesn't sound like Mozart, and Home Stretch, which has this driving, which just gets faster and faster, it's about cars, and it gets faster and faster, and almost goes off the rails. And it seems to me that you're kind of you're, you're kind of bridging that gap between classical and non-classical, and particularly because of the Eno references. Well... First of all, I'm very pleased that you you uh, put this on on your compilation. I it's funny because I think in some ways um, the album that really was intended to be that kind of gateway was the previous album, Shy and Mighty, 
um, which I really. You look like, so young in the cover photo on that. I Were was you like twenty uh, two. Yeah, probably twenty four, twenty three, twenty four. Yeah. Um, and and Homestretch is more than ten years old. It's ten years old this year. Okay. Um, but yeah, some of the music on it is older than that. Uh, yeah. And uh, yes, I mean, Shine and Mighty was really written to be like structured like a pop album of the sequence of kind of interrelated um, four or five, six minute tracks um, that kind of flows like an album. You know, and I know people don't listen to albums anymore. So, um, but I think it works that way. Whereas Home Stretch was more kind of three, three um, separate works that you know, were, were kind of all written around the same time. And they, they did all exist actually on a concert program together. Um, and there are relations between them, but they don't really flow together in the same way. But one of the things is that you, you had the balls to take a Mozart piano concerto and change it. And we just assume the classical music has to be played note for note. You know, I, I think it's important, especially as a musician to approach the to approach this body of music not as you know sort of this this you know holy relic um that you know has to be um you know uh regarded with a, a kind of um you know hagiography or uh you know that it's it's not untouchable that you know even though one may feel sometimes that the work is you know sort of beyond comprehension or, or, um, you know, there's, there's certainly pieces in the, in the, in the repertoire that I am, uh, that I remain in awe of in a way, but I can't let that affect my, my day-to-day interaction with the music. Cause I'm, I'm here trying to, trying, trying to make my own contribution you know it's like i have work to do um i i can't let that sort of um sort of uh start to trip me up um and so you know mozart is one of these composers who people are especially tiresome about uh, you know saying you, you know those works are so perfect that you know you've heard all the all the sort of cliches that that people resort to um and so, yeah, I mean, this this piece in particular was a candidate because Mozart left it kind of unfinished. The, the the piano part was unfinished in the manuscript, and it had no left hand for most of it, um, kind of written in a hurry. And it's actually, you can kind of tell that it was written in a hurry, that it's uh, a piece that is too long, and it's not uh, maybe as engaged as... A lot of those, you know, late piano concertos are. Um, there's a kind of public quality to the piece um, that is maybe a little less interesting than than a lot of his other music around that time. Um, and so, it a- appeared to me to be something that I could um, that I could, yeah, use for this kind of experiment. Um, and it it is very much an experiment. I mean, it I, it's not a not a work that I would say is necessarily, um, you know, entirely successful beginning to end. I think it's it's like 
it's more of a a kind of what if um uh a uh a provocation in a way uh so it's yeah it's it's funny to to listen back to it and it and it is something that I did very quickly I think I I wrote it in, in probably 2 weeks not as fast as Mozart did no that's <laughs> true that's true um and then uh well you know it it, it suits suits the piece in a way um because it is kind of this very tossed off thing um the other two pieces you know are in a way you know the the uh, the paraphrase on themes of Brian Eno um, again is kind of a throwback to a 19th century tradition of the of the paraphrase this this sort of idea that you would take some tunes from like a hit opera or something and work them into a shorter piece maybe for orchestra maybe for solo piano. Um, you know, maybe you'd write some variations on a popular tune from an opera. Um, this way of, of kind of reworking popular music into a different form. Uh, for commercial reasons or for artistic reasons? Well, uh, maybe some of each. Well, remember in the 19th century, they were selling sheet music to the upper middle class people who were learning to play piano, et cetera. Exactly. And, and, and you know, it, it would have been really exciting to be able to, you know, play some of the tunes from your favorite opera in this form that made sense on your home piano. Your favorite opera that you may have only heard once because they exactly. didn't have recordings. So, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, th it was sort of this, again, an experiment to do this with, um, you know, someone who I regard as a, an important figure in contemporary music, Brian Eno, um, even though he's not typically maybe thought of as a classical composer. Well, according to Apple, he is. He shows up in the a Apple Classical app. Well, and, that's one of the things that mystifies me about it. It's like, who makes those decisions? And But not all of his albums, but something like Another Green World, which you took songs from there, is in the Classical Music app, which makes no sense. I can understand music for airports. I can understand some of his longer generative ambient pieces, but not his rock albums. No, and, and that's, that's definitely a pop-up. Is that it? So that my piece takes um, some of the songs that are more pop songs, straight ahead pop songs, and then uh, some of the music that is more kind of instrumental or ambient or electronic and kind of weaves it into a new structure um, that is, you know, it's a, a 13 or 14 minute piece, I think. Um, so, so the challenge was... Or the experiment was to kind of, you know, create this little suite with tunes that would be recognizable without the words, um, and then also to kind of translate the the sound world of it from this very clearly studio product, something that was made in a recording studio and kind of overlaid track by track uh, with a lot of electronic instruments. Um, and translate that to purely acoustic instruments and the the, the chamber orchestra. And um, so in that way, it was a little bit of almost an orchestration exercise um, of take, taking this pre-existing music and, and kind of seeing how I could uh, translate something of the, of the feeling of, again, and like one of the things I, I 
I value in Eno's music is this sense of acoustic space of, of him, like, even if it's like, uh, something he produced, like, I don't know, the Joshua tree or something. It's like, mm. you, you are in this, this kind of acoustic space that feels physical and it, it feels, um, you, you are, you're, it's kind of inspiring in a way. It doesn't feel like a studio. One of my favorite things on your YouTube channel is your version of Everything Merges with the Night, which I think definitely has that feel. I never would have imagined it could be done as a solo piano piece, and yet it it really works really well. Well, and that that track, um, you know, it has a lot of piano in it in the original. It's sort of pianos and guitars. Um, and it is, yeah, it exists in this very reverberant kind of washy acoustic space that you know, is perfect for the piano because the piano is kind of one of the one of the only acoustic instruments that has its own way of modulating acoustic space, you know, with the with the sustain pedal. And you have this kind of sympathetic, this big sympathetic uh piece of furniture with all these things vibrating in it uh in relation to each other. That is, I mean, that is the sound of the piano, and it's the, it's why you know when you play a, a like like a little electronic keyboard or something, it's not an inspiring sound. Yeah. Even as a sustain pedal or whatever, because it's like it can never get the complexity of those overtones and the 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 sympathetic reverberations. It's analog versus digital. Boom. Yeah. All right, I want to close by talking about your new album, which isn't out yet, and I've only heard one track of it. It's called Reflections. Now, this is, you are a pianist, you are not a composer. This was composed by Sufjan Stevens, and you and Connor Hannock play pianos for this. It's music for a ballet, I think. I had only ever heard of Sufjan Stevens as a alternative singer, rock, pop, etc. I had no idea that he did things as obscure as this. And I've been going through his catalog in the past few days from electronic to like the, a meditative album to songs. And this is almost a, this is a pretty crunchy piano album. Yeah. I mean, Sufjan, I think um, he's, he's an extremely, uh, multifaceted artist and and has you know he he's an inspiring figure to me because he is someone who has never settled down you know he's never been content to just do the thing that he's known for um and he's he's been known now for i don't know about 20 years um has has had quite a devoted audience and um and the way that he has chosen to um, kind of run his career, or make his his life in music, is more that of an experimental artist, and it, he he gives himself the space and the leeway to do all of these things that are interesting to him that may not have as large an audience. So you know that means these ballet scores. He's written you know a lot a lot of music for dance. He's written. You know, he's done a lot of collaborative albums um, with with other artists who he he finds kinship with. He he you know he changes his own sound quite a lot. You know, every every couple albums, it's really like a totally different way of hearing his music. And but the fact remains, you know, I I'd say he's one of the 
great singer-songwriters of our time and um, really has has written, you know, for my money, some of the, some of the greatest pop songs, and you might even call them folk songs um, of the 21st century. Um, so it, it's really, it's a, a privilege to get to work with him in this way. And I've, this is actually the third of his ballet scores that I've worked on in some capacity. Um, Ecstasis uh, is the first track uh, of many tracks, maybe seven or eight tracks. Seven. Yeah, um, out in a couple of weeks. I don't know when this comes out, but end of May. Um, and yeah, it's 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 two pianos. So so Connor Hannock and and me and um, quite uh, propulsive music, quite uh, colorful, as you say. Um, it's uh, uh, there's a, a, a an astonishing amount of variety in this in this score. Um, it's very fun. It's very, you know, at times contemplative. Um, but you know what? When I think when Sufjan is working for dance, he he feels himself to be very uh, subservient in a way to the to the dance. That he is really just there to write music that is fun to dance to and has this kind of physicality um, that the dancers will find useful. Um, and it's a, it's a very, uh, a very kind of humble way of, of looking at the, the job of, a a dance composer in a way. It's interesting. Cause that's how John Cage started was composing for dance as well. Uh-huh. And, and well, and, and Philip Glass as well worked a lot with dance early on. Um, yeah. you know, I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a way of, of kind of, uh, yeah, almost sublimating the, uh, the the kind of ego of the composer, you know. And Sufjan's whole thing is kind of uh, it, it, it's sort of sublimating his ego, I would say. Um, and working with him on this was, and and all the the various other things I've done with him, very very collaborative. And he's a great collaborator. Um, very trusting of the the people he works with, very open to um, changing things sort of on the fly, working things out in the studio as one would do kind of more in a in a in a pop music context. Um, and you know really bringing uh, it's it's fun music for me because um, I really can bring all of my interpretational uh, ideas to bear. Um, it's, it's music that I think, um, can withstand a lot of different interpretations and, um, and, and Sufjan's very open to those kinds of ideas. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited for, for people to hear the rest of the album. I think it's, it's really fun. Okay. Timo, thank you for what is probably our longest episode. We, we definitely appreciate all these great comments. You should Write some of these things down. You're good at this. <laughs> I've been doing more writing uh, lately, actually. Um, you know, both these liner notes and you know, little little articles here and there. It's something that you know, um, I I want to continue being a part of my my kind of uh, musical life. Um, it's uh, I find it very difficult. You know, writing is especially writing about music is 
you know, not easy, but I'm always glad to have done it. And I, I feel like I learn a lot by doing it. So um, yeah, stay tuned. Okay, Timo Andrus, thanks very much. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks to you both. Great to chat. This was episode number 255 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.